saying this. He said, if you tell a devout Christian that his wife is cheating on him or that frozen yogurt can make a man invisible, he is likely to require as much evidence as anyone else. But if you tell him that the book he keeps by his bed was written by an invisible deity who will punish him with fire for eternity if he fails to accept its every incredible claim about the universe, he seems to require no evidence whatsoever. And and so we've got to wrestle. Why do we really believe that the Scriptures are the Word of God? If we do some investigation, we do some study, we find that there's really some some wise um, information out there to help us to back up why we believe that the Scriptures are the Word of God. And so today, I pray that with the aid of the Spirit of God, as we study the Word of God, that we can answer some of the doubts that you have, okay? And so, if you would, if you've got your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, I want to start reading in verse 17. If you would, stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word this morning. Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to pick up in verse 17. Jesus said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, that's the Old Testament scriptures. That's what he would have referred to as the Old Testament. He said, I've not come to abolish them, but I've come to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, and not a dot, that's like the smallest character of the Hebrew alphabet, like a comma, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, he will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Father, may you take your word that is written to us, and Lord, would your spirit, Help us to understand it and correctly apply it to our lives this morning. Father, to the end, that Christ would be exalted, that our hearts would be changed, and that, Lord, we would be more faithful. We would grow and mature in our walk with you. And that's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, you guys, go ahead and be seated. All right, so this is kind of the tip of the iceberg. As we're going to jump around, and I try to put many of these passages on the scripture on the screen, but you get an idea from Matthew chapter 5, the importance that Jesus placed on the Scriptures. He said, I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament, I came to fulfill it. Until heaven and earth pass away, there's not going to be like the smallest part of the Hebrew alphabet that's going to pass from it until everything is, is passed away. And so sometimes it's important for us to note what Jesus said, but it's also important for us to note what Jesus did not say. Do you know that in the entirety of the Gospels, we have no record whatsoever that Jesus ever said anything negative about the Old Testament. He never said one word that would condemn or denigrate the authenticity of the Old Testament Scriptures. And so nothing, not at all. But now, let me make a few statements about what he did say uh, and how he did view the Old Testament Scriptures. Number one, now these are everything but the last point is going to be on your um, handout, and you can write in the last point. Number one, He believed that the Old Testament, what we know of the Old Testament, he believed it was a historical fact. He he talked about things in his ministry like like creation, Noah and the flood, Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah, Jonah, Daniel. Now, many times we get tripped up on some of the miracles that we read about in the Old Testament, but Jesus believed that they were true. And so when he talked about the flood, 
he believed that there was a literal flood that happened in the days of Noah. You talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. He really believed that Sodom and Gomorrah were just, was destroyed by fire from heaven. He really believed that Jonah really did live three days in the belly of a great fish. He talked about all those things and believed that they were were really historical facts. Now, some of you, if you have studied history, you've noticed before that there are books that were written long ago that they're looked upon as reliable and historically accurate that don't have as much credibility as what the Scriptures have. Now, for example, there are five copies of Aristotle's Poetics that's dated 1,400 years after the original. Caesar's Gallic Wars described events that occurred in 58 B.C. and the few manuscripts scholars have are from 1,100 years after their death, 1,000 years after their death. Now, if I'm boring, you just hang on just for a moment. I realize I'm talking about history, but y'all stay with me. Perk your ears up. Alexander the Great. There are two historical biographies of Alexander the Great that are seen as, histor- as, as authoritative and fully accurate. The earliest one was written 400 years after he died. Historians think all of these things, I mean, they view them as historically accurate. However, what do they believe about the New Testament? 2,500 copies of the New Testament. As many as 25,000 full or partial copies of the New Testament. Don't, Don't get confused and think that's a bad thing. That's a very good thing because if you have that many, if there's a mistake, it's easy to point it out. And so 25,000 copies, that's, that's an awesome thing. What about time-wise? Majority or all of the New Testament was compiled within one generation of the life of Jesus. Many of the, of the books that Paul wrote in the, in the New Testament were compiled within 20 years of the life of Jesus. Jesus. You say, why is that important? Because when you're an eyewitness to these things, you, you can recall these things. It's not like you're writing these down four or five hundred years on the testimony of somebody else. And so just as Jesus Christ believed that the Old Testament was historically accurate, we should be. We could look at the New Testament and say, you know what? That's historically accurate as well because we've got so many manuscripts that were written within a short time frame after the life of Christ. Okay, and so Jesus, he says, you know what? The scriptures they're historically factual. Number two, he believed that the Old Testament was inspired by God. Now there are several examples in the in the New Testament where Jesus would quote the Old Testament. And many times, now when I say inspired by God, it means that God still used a human author to inspire him to and use the human to write the scriptures. And so many times what Jesus would do is he would quote the Old Testament and say, let's, let's say he's quoting something from the law in which Moses wrote. Moses, certainly, we know that Moses wrote the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. But when Jesus would quote Moses, he'd say, don't you remember what God said? And so he's attributing to what Moses said as something that God had, had said himself. Does that make sense? You, you following? Now, here's a great example. It's going to be on the screen. Um, Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 43. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they've been on this kick where they're trying to trip Jesus up on some of, on some of his teachings. And, and so the Pharisees come and ask him a question, then the Sadducees come and ask him a question, then the Pharisees come back and, and, and he answers all their questions. And so Jesus turns the tables and he asks them a question. And he's, he's saying, okay, okay, big boys, you think you know everything. Let me ask you a question. The Messiah. The Savior. Whose son is he? Now, that's, now, remember, the Pharisees were like these, these religious dudes that have, like, graduated from Harvard. 
They're the most intellectual people on the, on the Old Testament that there were in this time. And so Jesus asked them, hey, the, the Messiah, the Messiah, the Christ, uh, whose son is seen? Now, this would have been like a, a major leaguer hitting a, a tee ball off of a tee. I mean, it's just, I mean, they would have knocked this one out of the park. It would have been no question. Now, hey, of course, he's David's son. The Messiah is going to come through the line of David. And then when you get down to, to verse 43, here's what he says. How is it then that David, now notice what he says, in the spirit calls him Lord. And then he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying David, who is the author of Psalm 110, inspired by the spirit of God called the Messiah, Lord. He's saying that the spirit was in inspiring David as he wrote Psalm 110. And so we come back to our culture and we say, well, man, there's not really many people in our culture who will trust the authenticity of the Scriptures. They don't believe that God, well, A, they don't believe in God, but B, they say certainly God would not inspire people to write something today. And even if God did, it's been copied so many times that there's so many mistakes in it that to be sure, what we hold in our hands today can't be Really, the Word of God. I'm going to share something with you. I've shared with you before as we've kind of walked through this context, but it's been several years ago. How many Tar Heel fans do we have in here this morning? Ooh, go Tar Heels. All right. All right, so at, at, at North Carolina, you've got this dude by the name of Bart Ehrman in, in their religious department that he, he used to be a believer, but now he's, a, he's an atheist or an agnostic at, at best. Mark Ehrman, in one of his one of his books, it says that there's four hundred thousand errors in the Bible, four hundred thousand. Okay, now let me just kind of work with you uh, and help you kind of grasp what he's trying to say there. And so when he says that there's four hundred thousand errors, he's not talking about four hundred thousand different errors that he finds in the scriptures. Remember when I said that there's as many as 25,000 either partial or complete manuscripts of the New Testament? Okay, and so if he finds one error that that he deems an error, and it happens in 20,000 manuscripts, he just says, okay, there's 20,000 errors right there. Okay, and so if you take his 400,000 errors and then you and then you break it down to all of those that are repeated, you get down to 10,000 errors. Now, 10,000 is a lot smaller than 400,000. Wouldn't you agree? Okay, so now we're down to 10,000 errors. Now, here's I'm going to quote J.D. Greer. Here's what he says when we take into those 10,000 errors. He says, of these 10,000 errors, or, or variants is what he called them, he said, most of those are like, we would spell Christie with a C, but it's spelled with a K. Does that make sense? Or it's um, it's a typo, typo it's, it's, or something that's you know a copying mistake, or something that's extremely, extremely obvious. For example, and there was a translation that went to the printing press in the 16th century that had the seventh commandment as this, thou shalt commit adultery. You see the mistake, right? Y'all catch that mistake? The commandment says, thou shalt not commit adultery. And so when you have that many manuscripts, you can pick out that that's an obvious mistake. And so here's what he said. From the 10,000 of like, you know, Christie for Christie or something like that, you're down to 400 if you take out all of those. 
Of those 400, what you find are a bunch of passages that have differing word order. It's like saying Christ Jesus versus Jesus Christ. And so if you take those 400, all of these different word orders, you take those, now you're down to 40. 40 passages where there is some sense that a, that a sentence has been changed. And of those 40, what J.D. Greer says, absolutely zero is at stake theologically. And so that means we can believe wholeheartedly that the Bible that we hold in our hands this morning, I can stand up before you this morning and say, thus says God. Now, sure, is, is some of those passages it might be Jesus Christ that in the original manuscript might have said Christ Jesus. Absolutely. But is that really going to change anything in your spiritual walk with Jesus? Absolutely not. It's like we, we can stand fully convinced that this is the Word of God written to us. It was divinely inspired by Him. Can, and this is just free. It's not in my notes. If you believe that Jesus Christ, that the power of God can raise Him from the dead, and you believe that, essential for your salvation, do you not believe that that same God is powerful enough to preserve the authenticity of His Word? Absolutely we should be able to do that. Number three, Jesus believed there was great power in the Scriptures. In Luke chapter 16, have y'all ever heard the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? Have y'all heard that before where the rich man, he lived a very, very wealthy life and then Lazarus was the poor man and that sores all over his body. And they both died. And the rich man goes to hell and Lazarus goes to heaven. And, and, and the rich man looks up and begins to call out to Father Abraham for water and different things. And, and at some point, the, the, the rich man says, Abraham, Abraham, would you send somebody to my house? I, I've got family members there. Send somebody to tell them the truth so they don't end up in hell like I am. And here is his response. I think this is going to be on the screen for you. Maybe I didn't put it up there. If it is, it's my fault. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if some... Now listen to what Jesus said. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And And he said, No, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they do not hear the Scriptures... Neither would they be convinced should someone rise from the dead. Seven chapters later, in the Gospel of Luke, we read about the resurrection of Jesus. It is the centerpiece of our faith, and Jesus says that if you won't believe in the authenticity, if you won't believe in the Scriptures, then it doesn't really matter how many miracles you see. Even if someone being raised from the dead, you still won't believe. You see, the power of faith is in you believing the testimony of the Scriptures. Jesus says that the witness of the Scriptures is greater than miracles. Going a step further, remember when Jesus was first baptized, he was led into the Spirit, led by the Spirit into the wilderness where where he fasted and prayed for forty days and forty nights. At the end of those forty days and forty nights, Satan came to him and began to tempt him. Each time Jesus was tempted by the enemy, how did he respond? He responded in Scripture every single time. You see, there is power that is available to you in the testimony of the Scriptures. That's why in Ephesians chapter 6, in the longest passage we have about spiritual warfare, there is only one weapon, offensive weapon that we have. It's called the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. And so when I say that Jesus believed that there was power in the Scriptures, that's what He's referring to. And that even... 
even if you see people that have been died and raised again, it's not as powerful as the scriptures that you have given to you today. Last thing, it's not, it's not on your handout, but you can write it in. Jesus says this, the scriptures are all about me. In Matthew 5, he says he did not come to abolish the Old Testament. He didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets. I came to fulfill them. In Luke 24, verse 44, it's on the road to Emmaus. Uh, Jesus says that the law, the prophets, and the writings were about him. And he was the fulfillment of everything that was written in the Old Testament. Now, let me tell you why that passage is important. Uh, Hebrew scholars break down the Old Testament into three main parts. You have the law, that's the first five books. And then you have the prophets, you know, you, major prophets, minor prophets. Then you have the, the writings, uh, things like Psalms and, and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job. Uh, everything is, is kind of broken down into those contexts. And so when, when Jesus says the law and the prophets and the writings, they're all about me, he said everything written in the Old Testament, it, it's pointing to me. It's all about me. And I want you to stop and I want you to think about, think about it just for a moment. Think about the Exodus for a moment. Y'all remember when the children of Israel were delivered from from Egypt? The night before they they were delivered, Moses and Aaron said, guys, you you need to take a sacrificial lamb and you need to sacrifice it. You need to put the blood of that lamb on your doorpost because the angel of the Lord is passing over tonight and if he don't see the blood on your your doorpost, your firstborn is going to die. For every house he found that the blood of the lamb was on their doorpost, they were spared. Man, do you see the, the imagery for you and I? But one day, every single one of us is going to, we're going to face death. And if the blood of Jesus Christ has not made a difference in your life, you're going to be eternally separated from the Father in a place called hell. The, the entire story of the Exodus, them being delivered from slavery in Egypt, to go into the promised land, that is a picture of your salvation. That you, much like me, uh, we were bound by sin. It It enslaved us. But it is the power of the cross that has set us free from slavery and sin and given us an inheritance that we did not deserve. Eternity with Christ in heaven. Think about this. Every sacrifice in the law, you read the book of Leviticus, it's not necessarily great to read it for a quiet time, but every sacrifice that the law prescribes, it points to Jesus. And in the Old Testament, there was a sacrificial lamb that they sacrificed, like on the Day of Atonement. It's a picture of Jesus being sacrificed for you. On the same day, they would take the scapegoat, and they would symbolically transfer the sins of the people onto the head of the scapegoat, and send him out into the wilderness. And it's a picture that Jesus has taken your sin, taken the penalty of your sin, and he's taken those away from you. Everything in the law, it pointed to Jesus. Think about the Psalms. Psalm 23. Some of you could recite Psalm 23. Jesus is our great shepherd, that if we have him in our life, it does not matter if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We will fear no evil. You cannot, if you, if you were to turn to Psalm 22, you could not read Psalm 22 and then turn around and read the cross and not see exactly the cross in Psalm 22. You know how Psalm 22 begins? Psalm 22 verse 1, it, it begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
It's the exact words that Jesus cried out on the cross. In Psalm 22, you have David there describing himself. Man, my bones are, are all out of joint. And you realize that Jesus, his shoulders were out of joint on the cross. He talks about people that have encircled him and were, and were, and were talking about him just like happened on the cross when people were mocking Jesus on the cross. It was all written about him in, the, in those writings. And then how can you not read the prophets? Someone like Isaiah where it was prescribed that the Savior would come be born of a virgin. And then you read Isaiah 53 where it talks about surely he has borne our griefs and he was smitten by God for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was laid upon him. Everything we read about in the Old Testament it points us to Jesus Christ. When you see everything that Jesus fulfilled in the Old Testament through His life, through His death, through His resurrection, you can't help but believe that He is the Messiah. That He is the Son of God. I want you to catch this. Scholars tell us that there are over 300 prophecies directly fulfilled in Christ. 300 separate prophecies that are directly fulfilled in Christ. I want you to look at it this way. The odds... Now catch this, the odds that one man could fulfill over 300 prophecies, someone much smarter than I am, said that's like 10 to the 157th power. That's like 10 with 157 zeros behind it. You figure out what that number is. My my math don't go quite that high. My elevator don't go that high. Maybe yours does. Now put that in perspective. 10 to the 16th power, that's 10 with 16 zeros behind it. It would be like taking the state of Texas, covering it two feet deep in quarters, painting one black, and having a blind man pick the right one on the first try. That's 10 to the 16th power. The odds of Jesus fulfilling everything that was prophesied about him, 10 to the 157th power. If Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies, he is the Son of God, then then I'll just make this plain. I think you should listen to what he says about his word. I want to close with this. And it just naturally flows from it. If the scriptures are all about Jesus, that automatically means that it's not all about you. A lot of times we come to the scriptures and we think it's all about us. Lord, bless me today. You know, there's a popular children's Bible out. And I encourage all of the children to have it. It's written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. Silent Lord John says, every story whispers his name. The entire scripture whisper his name. And you see, some of you, maybe in this room this morning, just, just kind of everybody just be still and just listen to this just for a moment. Everybody pay attention. Just, you know, no paper rattling. Just listen to this. Some of you may be on the verge of walking away from the faith this morning. And maybe. Maybe on the inside you already have. Maybe you still show up at church, but you, you know, from the faith, you're just not really keen on it. Maybe you've walked away from the faith. Maybe you know somebody who has because you have chosen to reject the Bible because you read it in the eyes of it being all about you. You read it and it was, you, you thought, man, I've got to do this to please God and I've got to have this moral life and I've got to do this for God. And, and instead of the Bible being freeing in your life, it, you said, no, that, that really puts me in bondage. That doesn't that, that make me feel like I'm free. Because you realize that no matter how hard you tried, you, you just couldn't do everything that God says you should do. Now, if that's you, I want you to listen to me very carefully. Truth is, you never will. You can never be perfect. 
you're always going to make mistakes. And when you come to the Scriptures and you realize that it's not all about you and it's all about Jesus, you realize that Jesus lived a perfect life for you because He knows that you can't. You realize that Jesus died on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins because He knew that you could never be perfect in yourself. And so He came and He lived a perfect life for you so that He could give you His righteousness and He would take the penalty of your sins. And He says, the Scriptures are not about you this morning. They're about me. And I want you to understand that there's grace and mercy and forgiveness to be found in the cross. He wants you to understand that He loved you enough that He gave His life in your place that you realize that being a follower of Jesus is not about following rules. It's about falling in love with the Savior who paid the perfect sacrifice for your sins. When you fall in love with Jesus, when you begin to see Him in His Word, it changes you from the inside out. So why do I believe in the... Scriptures are the Word of God. Because Jesus did. And if He did, and I'm His follower, I follow in His example. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank You for the testimony of Your Word. I thank You for this great salvation that we've been given in Christ. I I thank you, Lord, that as I read and study his word, that, Lord, it shows me that that I'm not good enough, that it's all about him. And so, Father, I pray for every person that can actually hear me right now, Lord, that, Lord, maybe there might be some and they've just kind of been lax and complacent in their walk with you. This morning that, Lord, they've just been convicted that they've taken your word for granted. And Lord, today, would, would they just have like a mini revival, Lord? That's the, that's the only way I know how to ask, Lord. That they would have a mini revival in their life, Lord, where they would recommit themselves to being your follower. And that, Lord, they would, they would take steps, Lord, just to begin to honor your word, Lord, the way in which Jesus honored it. And Father, as... As always, Lord, if we pray, Lord, that there's people under the sound of our voice, Father, and they've never really surrendered their life to you, Lord. Today, Lord, but they truly give their heart and life to you. Father, as, as we stand and as we sing, Lord, would you have your way in this place, Father. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You guys go ahead and stand with me. And as we we stand and we sing, it's, it's just an opportunity to respond to what the Spirit of God has spoken into your heart. And so if you're here this morning, you've never surrendered Jesus to Jesus, and you just sense the Spirit of God saying, today you need to give your life to me. You realize that Jesus did pay it all, but you've never given Him your all. Would you come? Maybe you're the person who I pray for just a mini revival to take place in your life. That the the word of God is just not taking precedence in your life. And your walk with Jesus has just been lax. It's it's been complacent. Today the the spirit of God is placing an importance on the word of God that you need to 
to spend time with Jesus in the Word so that you grow and mature into the man or woman or child that God wants you to be. Would you come and just make that rededication, make that recommitment? I don't typically ask for that. But as the Spirit of God is leading you, you respond as the Lord leads.